Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. First of all, everybody listening that is a mother, that is a dog mom, an animal Step mom, foster mom, anything, you're trying to become a mom, anything, happy Mother's Day to all of you. Yes. Happy belated Mother's Day. Hope you all had a wonderful weekend and a wonderful day and everyone that loves you celebrated you. Yeah. Just wanted to say that. And also, there's been some pretty big true crime news that I wanted to share before we get into today's episode. So that is that the Girl Scout murders have been solved after 35 years. This is insane. This is so insane. I'm so happy. I am too. It's a pretty big one. If you've been in the true crime community, you probably know about it or have at least heard about it. But basically, in 1977, three young girls named Lori, Michelle, and Denise were murdered at a camp that they were at. And they were Girl Scouts. That's why it's, you know, deemed the Girl Scout murders. Yeah. And there were many suspects over the years, tons of theories, but it remained unsolved. But last week it was announced that thanks to DNA testing, a man named Gene Leroy Hart has been identified as the killer. So he was actually charged with the murders back in 1978. He was charged, he went to trial, and he was acquitted. So jury found him not guilty. And at the time of his acquittal, he was in jail jail for another crime, and he actually died not long after in jail. So he's no longer alive. But investigators still believed that he was the killer. But there were also other suspects and other theories out there that kept circulating. But now, thanks to this improved DNA technology that we have, all of the other potential suspects have been ruled out. And Gene Hart has officially been identified as the killer. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to share that with you guys. Like I said, we haven't covered it yet. We may at some point, but um, there's plenty of other like podcasts out there. I know Morbid did like a two part uh, mm-hmm. episode on this case. I think Crime Junkie did it. So you can go listen to those. But we just wanted to share that because it's like freaking huge. Yeah, it is. That's a really big one that has been unsolved for so long. Yeah, it's crazy. Also, side note, my I like don't really use Twitter a ton, but use it some. And I have like 500 followers or something. And I tweeted about it. And the tweet like got like 22,000 likes or something. And I was like, really? What the heck? People are invested. I'm telling you, those kind of cases like that, people are invested. They spend their whole lives like trying to investigate and theorize and all kinds of stuff. Can you imagine how the original investigators are feeling right now? Like knowing that that case was solved. 
I would feel sick, honestly, though, because he was charged, acquitted, and now yeah. he's dead. So yeah. there is, you know, a sliver of justice, but to me, it's just not enough. No, you know, I, agree. I mean, I'm so happy they solved it after all these years because that does at least, you know, hopefully give some some peace to some people. Um, yeah, that there's not a killer on the loose out there, but it's just it's very bittersweet, I guess you could say. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but yeah, okay. So I just wanted to share that, and now we can get into today's case. Okay. So today we are going to be talking about Carrie and Stephen Stainer which is super interesting, and it was actually suggested by one of our listeners named Arianne. So Arianne suggested this, and I'm not going to lie to you guys, I've been like super busy and super behind on podcast stuff, and I didn't start researching this until today, Sunday, (laughs) for Monday, and I was about to start looking for a case, and I saw an email come in with this suggestion from Arianne and she said it was super interesting so I like googled it just because I was like oh let me just look at this one that just came in and I got drawn in immediately I was like oh my gosh oh my gosh so I decided to cover it today okay and it really is wild all right let's hear it and the Stainer family in this case is actually the focus of a new true crime docuseries on Hulu called Captive Audience a Real American Horror Story So I think that's, like, how some people have heard of it. I hadn't heard of it, and I haven't watched it yet, but I have heard it's very good. So after you listen to this case, and if you want to know more, you can definitely go check that out. Yeah, I definitely will. And Andrea, I, this case is, like, there's a lot of, not tangents, but, like, different aspects to it. So if you ever get confused, just ask me to clarify, because I'm sure if you're confused, the listeners will be confused. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Carrie Anthony Stainer was born on August 13, 1961, to Delbert and Kay Stainer. The family of seven, which included Carrie, his one younger brother, and three sisters, lived in Merced, California, which is in the northern part of California. In 1972, when Carrie was 11 years old, his seven-year-old brother, Stephen, was kidnapped. Oh my gosh. So we're first going to talk about that. On the afternoon of December 4th, 1972, Stephen was walking home from school when a man named Irvin Edward Murphy approached him. So Murphy was passing out gospel tracts to boys that were walking home from school that afternoon, and when he approached Stephen, he told him that he was a church representative seeking donations, asking if Stephen's mother would be willing to donate some items to the church. So Stephen said, absolutely. So Murphy asked where he lived and if he would be willing to take him back to his home to, you know, get these items for donation. So Stephen agreed, and shortly after, a white Buick drove up, and the two got in the car. But instead of driving towards Stephen's home, the driver, a man named Kenneth Parnell, began driving in the opposite direction. Oh, no. So Kenneth Parnell had actually planned this entire thing out. He had enlisted Murphy to, to help him abduct a young boy under the pretense of, quote, raising him in a religious type deal. And Murphy was extremely trusting, naive, and described as being a simple-minded man, so he agreed to help Parnell. So Parnell drove Murphy and Stephen to his cabin in the nearby Cathy's Valley, and there he held Stephen captive for the next seven years. (gasps) What? Wait, what's his name? Stephen Stainer. 
Hmm. Don't look it up, though, because not, there's not, more that, okay. that I want you to hear about on the podcast. Okay. But, mm-hmm. And actually, technically, he wasn't held in that cabin, but he was held for seven years. Wow. So before we go any further, let's tra- talk a little bit about the abductor, Kenneth Parnell. Kenneth Eugene Parnell was born on September 26, 1931, to Cecil Frederick and Mary Olive Parne- Parnell. The family lived in Amarillo, Texas during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. And his father, Kenneth's father, actually abandoned the family when he was just six years old. So he had a little bit of a rough life growing up. And eventually the family moved to Bakersfield, California, where Kenneth lived with his mom, stepdad, and three half-siblings. Okay. He spent most of his adolescence in and out of juvie and mental institutions, so Uh, he just, you know, that was kind of what happened. Yeah. And in March 1951, at 20 years old, he was arrested for sodomy and for impersonating a police officer. Wow. So he had lured a child to buy to him Mm -hmm. by using a deputy sheriff's badge that he had purchased at an Army-Navy surplus store. Wow. Once he lured this boy in, he had assaulted him, and he later claimed that he kidnapped this boy because at the time, his wife was pregnant, and he, quote, had to find another outlet. Um, okay. Not a mm-hmm. little boy. I mean, mm-hmm. not not anyone, but especially not a little boy. That's Yeah, but thankfully, he was caught, he was arrested, but he was only sentenced to four years in prison. Of course it was. He actually escaped. From at one point when he was in prison, but he was recaptured like he did, <laughs> didn't get away. Jeez. Eventually, he was released from prison. And then about 10 years later, he was convicted again for armed robbery. After that release was when he was abducted or when he abducted seven-year-old Stephen Stainer. My goodness. So Parnell had met Edward Murphy while working at the Yosemite Lodge as a night auditor And he was able to convince Murphy to help him abduct a young boy. As I said earlier, he made it seem like he wanted to, you know, raise him in a religious way. So that's how he convinced Murphy to to help him. After abducting Stephen and bringing him to his cabin, Parnell began telling him that he had been granted legal custody of him because his parents could not afford all of their children anymore and didn't want him. What? Yeah. Wow. So he's... He then told Stephen that his new name was Dennis Gregory Parnell and that he was now basically his son. That's horrible. And of course, because he is a sick fuck, he also molested and assaulted Stephen several times. Mm -hmm. So Stephen Stainer and Kenneth Parnell moved frequently around California and Parnell was enrolling Stephen in schools using that name Dennis and actually using Stephen's original birth date. He also basically allowed Stephen to come and go as he pleased from the house. He was often traveling for work. He worked like menial jobs, but he would have to travel at times. Mm -hmm. So he would leave Stephen home alone. And Stephen later recalled how easily he could have escaped. But he said that at the time he was, you know, pretty much brainwashed. And he also had no clue how to get help. Yeah. After Parnell had manipulated him for so long. Yeah. At one point when Stephen was nine years old, a woman named Barbara Mathias moved in with them, and she lived with them for about 18 months, and according to Stephen, she participated in raping him on nine separate occasions. What? But despite her participating in this, she later claimed that she had no clue that 
Dennis had been kidnapped. She actually thought that he was Parnell's son. That doesn't excuse it at all. Yeah, I was going to say, how does that make uh, uh, molesting him better? Yeah, no, it doesn't. But she also was, you know, uh, under the the ruse, she had no clue that Parnell had abducted him. Yeah. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. In 1975, Parnell convinced Barbara to kidnap a young boy from the Santa Rosa Boys Club that Stephen attended. What? But thankfully, that attempt was unsuccessful. But this was just the beginning of Parnell trying to kidnap more younger boys. So as Stephen was getting older, he was entering puberty, Parnell wanted younger children. He was like, I don't want you anymore. I want younger children. That's disgusting. So he forced Stephen to help attempt to kidnap several young boys. All of these attempts failed. And Parnell began believing that Stephen basically lacked the means to be an accomplice, but Stephen later said that he had purposefully sabotaged all of the kidnapping attempts. Good for him. Yeah. On February 13th, 1980, Kenneth Parnell decided to enlist another teenager, a boy named Randall Sean Poorman, who was actually a friend of Stephen's, to help him kidnap a young boy. So he promised Randall drugs, alcohol, and money to help him. So... Randall helped him, quote-unquote, pick out and abduct five-year-old Timmy White from Ukiah, California. So Randall saw Timmy playing outside of his parents' house one afternoon and basically tried to usher him into Parnell's car. But when Timmy refused and tried to run inside, Randall shoved him against a chain-link fence and dragged him into the car. Mm. After that, Parnell paid Randall and then took Timmy back to his home where he dyed his blonde hair dark brown and told him his new name was Tommy. Over the next 16 days, Timmy and Stephen bonded. Stephen was helping take care of him, and he really felt a connection to Timmy. And he didn't want to see him suffer, so he decided that he was going to return him to his parents. Okay. On the night of March 1st, 1980, after Kenneth Parnell left for his night shift as a security guard, Stephen Stainer and Timmy White left the house and hitchhiked to Ukiah, the town where Timmy had been abducted from. Mm -hmm. They actually tried to find Timmy's parents' house, but they couldn't. They were able to find a babysitter's house that Timmy recognized, but nobody was home. So instead, they headed to to a police station. Once there, Stephen told Timmy to walk inside and tell the police who he was. But as Timmy approached the door, he got scared and ran back to Stephen. And officers inside actually observed this, and before Stephen and Timmy could leave, they went out, got them, and brought them inside, because they were like, clearly something's up. Right. They quickly learned who both of the boys were, and Kenneth Parnell was found and arrested before daybreak the next day. He was arrested on suspicion of abducting the boys, and police found his previous sodomy conviction when they looked into his background. So with that, he was officially arrested and charged with the kidnapping of both Stephen Stainer and Timmy White. 
He was convicted and sentenced to just seven years. What? Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. This is the same shit that we always talk mm-hmm. about. Yep. And that's the same amount of time that he had held Stephen in captivity. Or, yeah. you know, held him captive. And he's a repeat offender. He already has a record. He's already done jail time. Obviously, mm-hmm. this was before the three strike. But, mm-hmm. gosh... And even worse, he only served five of those years before being paroled. For what? What was he paroled for? Good behavior? (laughs) Yeah, probably. God. So after that, he seemed to live a pretty low-key life. And then in 2003, he was 71 years old and was suffering from several ailments and basically required 24-7 nursing care. Karma. Yeah. Um, at one point, he tried to get his caregiver's sister, a woman named Diane Stevens, to purchase a four-year-old boy for him. And you're on your deathbed, dude? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Diane, thankfully, was aware of Parnell's past, so she went to the police, and she helped them set up a sting operation to get him arrested. And thankfully, this worked, and on January 3rd, 2003, he was arrested on charges of attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation. That is insane. Mm Mm-hmm. He was convicted on February 9th, 2004, and sentenced to 25 years to life under California's three-strike law. Yay! Which, if you have not listened to our episode on Polly Class, her murder was a huge part in this law being created. Yes. It was... Two episodes? Last episode? Last episode. Yeah. 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 So go listen to that. But basically, this is repeat offenders. You know, once you hit three, that's it. You're going to get life. Right. So thankfully, finally, because of that, he would be spending the rest of his life in jail. And he died in 2008 due to natural causes. Wow. So back to 1980, both Stephen Stainer and Timmy White had escaped from Parnell and reunited with their families. Wow. Quickly, before we go back to the Stainer family, I want to share that Timmy White actually became a deputy with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in 2005, and he was giving lectures to children about his experience and the dangers of kidnapping. Yeah. So it's just like, I loved that. Full circle. Yeah. He also ended up getting married and having two children, but then unfortunately he passed away at the age of 35. Oh. <gasps> From a pulmonary embolism. Oh, man. Isn't that sad? That is so tragic. Yeah. But at least he did a lot with his life after that. Yeah. Yeah. So in the early morning hours of March 2nd, 1980, Stephen Stainer wrote out his police statement. It said, quote, my name is Stephen Stainer, but it was spelled wrong says, I am 14 years of age. I don't know my true birth date, but I use April 18th, 1965. I know my first name is Stephen. I am pretty sure my last name is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know it. My God. Isn't that sad? That is so, that is, that is actually really sad. I know. He's 14 and he doesn't even know any of that, that stuff. Yeah. Because of his captivity. I know. So after this, He was escorted by police to be reunited with his family, and he was able to return to his old life. But he had trouble adjusting to the more structured household of his old life. Yeah. Because while he was in captivity, he was allowed to smoke, he was allowed to drink, and just basically do whatever he wanted. But back at his parents, he was a child again. Yeah. 
as he should be. <laughs> yeah. In an interview shortly after he escaped, Stephen said, quote, I returned almost a grown man, and yet my parents saw me at first as their seven-year-old. Which, you know, is That's completely so understandable. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. So thankfully, eventually it did start to get better, but his relationship with his father was extremely strained. He underwent brief counseling, but his sister later said that he didn't seek much more counseling because their father just didn't think he needed it. Mm. He also pretty much refused to disclose anything about the sexual abuse that he endured while with Parnell. So he definitely could have benefited from more counseling, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. His sister said that while he continued his life, he was pretty messed up. After this, Stephen was actually bullied in school because he had been molested, because kids are awful. Horrible, yeah. So this led him to eventually drop out. And he began drinking frequently, and he was eventually kicked out of his family's home. Despite this, he did do a lot of work with child abduction groups, speaking to children about personal safety. So he, you know, was doing something positive for himself and for others. In 1985, at 19 years old, he got married to 17-year-old Jody Edmondson. And the couple ended up having two children together, and they eventually joined the LDS church. In 1989, Stephen was 24. He was living in Merced, California with his wife and kids and working in a pizza shop. But unfortunately, on September 16, 1989, Stephen was on his way home from work when his motorcycle collided with a car in a hit-and-run accident. So he got he's dead too? Both of the boys that were... That is yep. not right. That is... Yep. The driver of this car was later identified as 28-year-old Antonio Laura and... He initially f- fled the scene, but eventually he surrendered himself just like four days later. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Stephen passed away because of the accident. 500 people attended Stephen's funeral because of the like impact and the story mm-hmm. of him escaping. Right. And Timmy White, who was 14 at the time, was actually a pallbearer at his funeral. Oh, I know. Um, Shortly before Stephen died, a TV miniseries based on his story was produced. It was called I Know My First Name is Stephen, coming from his police statement the day he escaped. And the two-part series was broadcast on NBC in May 1989, and it was nominated for four Emmys. On August 28, 2010, after the deaths of both Stephen and Timmy, a statue of the two of them was dedicated in the Applegate Park in Merced. And the statue showed a teenage Stephen with a young Timmy in hand while escaping him from captivity. And it was meant to honor them while also giving hope to families of missing and kidnapped children. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So that's about half of this this story. If you remember, Carrie Stainer is who I started with. Mm-hmm. He was 11 years old when Stephen was kidnapped. And years later, he was arrested because he was... A serial killer. So, Stephen's older brother was a serial killer. Was a serial killer. Dang. Not until after Stephen. I wonder if that had away. anything to do with it. Yeah. So let's uh, go into my my next little section here because that okay. was a perfect segue. Okay. <laughs> so when Stephen was kidnapped, eleven-year-old Carrie remembered feeling neglected because mm-hmm. of his brother's disappearance. His parents were grieving the loss, and he just kind of felt neglected. 
When he was a kid, Carrie was known for being creative and outgoing, and many people thought that he would grow up to become a cartoonist or a graphic designer. But after Stephen's escape, things with Carrie changed. You know, when he came back, when Stephen came yeah. back home, there was a lot of strain on the family, and Carrie reportedly became a loner and started having some uncontrollable urges. Hmm. At one point, he exposed himself to his sister's friends, okay. and he was basically becoming fascinated by nature and nudity. So he eventually found refuge in nudist colonies near Yosemite, which, you know, that was a positive. Yeah. In 1990, 10 years after Stephen had returned home, Carrie was living with his uncle Jesse when his uncle, Jesse, was killed. Jeez. Carrie later claimed that his uncle had molested him when he was young. Mm. That's never been officially, like, proven or yeah. anything, but, you know. The next year, Carrie allegedly attempted suicide, and at one point, he was arrested for being in possession of meth and marijuana, but those charges were later dropped. Okay. In 1997, Carrie Stainer was hired as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal, California. So this was just outside of the Highway 140 entrance of Yosemite National Park, which is a big national park in Northern California. Mm -hmm. So he was working there as a handyman, and he continued working there over the next few years, maintaining that steady job in his otherwise unsteady life. On February 15, 1999, three tourists at the motel 40-year-old Carol Sund, her 15-year-old daughter Julie, and their 16-year-old family friend Sylvina Peloso went missing. About a month later, the charred remains of Carol and Sylvina were found in the trunk of their burned-out rental car. Wow. This was in a remote area several hours away from the Cedar Lodge. Mm -hmm. Their bodies were burned so badly that they had to be identified using dental records. Wow. After this discovery... Police received a note that had information about the third missing person, Julie. The top of the note read, quote, we had fun with this one. Ew. Yeah. And then the note had a hand-drawn map that led to Julie's remains. On March 25th, when investigators followed the map, they found Julie's decomposed remains, and this was less than an hour away from where the rental car had been found. So after this discovery, investigators obviously started figuring out all three of the women had been murdered i couldn't find their like actual cause of death but it was mm -hmm. being investigated as a homicide and they began interviewing employees at the cedar lodge because that's where the three women went missing from right and this included carrie stainer he was a clean-cut handyman he had no history of violence and so after they interviewed him they didn't think anything of him they started focusing their investigation on several suspicious people in the town of Modesto, where Carol's son's wallet was found in the street several days after her disappearance, but they couldn't connect anyone to her mur to the, the murders. Mm -hmm. Then, on July 22nd, 1999, the de decapitated body of another woman was found. So this was the body of 26-year-old Yosemite naturalist Joey Armstrong. She was found near her cabin, and she was believed to have been murdered the previous day, but this time, police had witnesses. Several people recalled seeing a blue 1997 International Scout, which is a car. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that, but it's a car. I know what a Scout is. Um, I actually do. I guess I'm no, out, it's, out of it's very. It's not common at all. It kind of looks like okay. a little Jeep kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it looked like very like boxy. Yeah. In the picture. I dated a guy who had one. 
That's the only reason I know. Well, there you go. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. So this car was seen parked outside of Joey's cabin before her murder. And this car belonged to, you guessed it, Carrie Stainer. Oh. But at first, he was actually not a suspect. He was simply just a witness that police were hoping to get a lead out of. Because I don't think the car was parked like right outside of her cabin it was right. just nearby so police were like oh maybe somebody else saw something yeah so police questioned him just like they questioned him when the three women were murdered a few months earlier and they found nothing suspicious out of him and also you know obviously didn't get any information but shortly after this two fbi agents decided that they wanted to talk to carrie stainer further yeah I mean, he's been in two suspicious situations. Exactly. Yeah. So these FBI agents, they're on it. Yeah. On July 24th, 1999, two days after Joey was found, Carrie Stainer was found staying at the Laguna del Sol nudist resort in Wilton, California. He was brought down to Sacramento for questioning, or actually it might be up to Sacramento. I don't know. I'm really bad with directions, but he was brought to Sacramento. Not that far away, but yeah. And during his interrogation, which was at first just, you know, questioning him, he shocked the agents when he confessed to Joey's murder and her decapitation and the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Wow. Did they, did they find, like, was her head with her body or was... I think so. Okay, okay. Yeah. Wow. So he confessed to all four murders. Yep. So he said that he had killed Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, quote, because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, sir. (laughs) Exactly. He confessed to sending that map as well. So police were like, okay, clearly he's the killer. His car was tested for forensic evidence and they found stuff that were able, stuff that was able to link him directly to Joey's murder. So he was arrested And after this, he claimed that he had fantasized about killing women since he was seven years old. What? So this was long before his brother's abduction. This was a part of him, like, way before. And maybe, you know, the way his family was and stuff could have contributed to it. But this was a part of him since he was a kid. So Carrie Stainer was tried in federal court for Joey Armstrong's murder because it occurred on federal land. Mm Mm-hmm. In this trial, to avoid the death penalty, he pleaded guilty to premeditated first-degree murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death. During his sentencing, he shocked people once again when he broke down in tears and began apologizing. Hmm. He said, quote, I wish I could take it back, but I can't. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm so sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless. You think he's really sorry? So Joey's mother, Leslie, actually later said that she did believe his apology was genuine. And I could also see it being true, like a genuine apology. He just had these urges and acted on them. Not that that excuses it at all. But I do, I personally do think that that apology was genuine. Carrie was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of Joey Armstrong. He was then tried in California State Court for the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. And in this trial, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. So his lawyers were claiming that he had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness, and that's what led him 
to become a serial killer. They also talked about how he had OCD and other mental illness or mental problems, basically, that contributed to all of this. However, he was found sane, and so he faced a jury trial. On August 27th, 2002, Carrie Stainer was convicted on of three counts of first-degree murder and one count of kidnapping. And for these murders, he was sentenced to death. But as we've talked about before, executions in California don't often happen. Yeah. Uh, the last one, I think, happened in 2006. So as of April 2022, 60-year-old Carrie Stainer remains on death row at the San Quentin State Prison, and he doesn't currently have an execution date. Wow. So, yeah, clearly the Stainer family suffered several heartbreaking events. Their seven-year-old son being kidnapped, that same son escaping but then dying in a motorcycle crash, and then their older son committing four brutal murders and being convicted and known as a serial killer. And I have a feeling we're not done yet. (laughs) That is the end. Oh, it is? (laughs) Okay. That is the end. I was like, I feel like there's one more person we haven't talked about. No, thankfully the sisters were all, all good. Um, You know, definitely there was some questions about what their father, how their father was, and the relationship that they had. But I don't think that you know he did anything criminal. Yeah. But this poor family, even when so much tragedy, I know they like when the um, statue of Stephen went up. They had actually been trying to get a park named, like, the Stephen Stainer Park. Yeah. But because of Carrie Stainer, Mm. that was rejected. Dang. That's not fair. I know. And the town that they lived in, Merced, it's a pretty small town. So, like, it's – I just feel so bad for them because it's, like, this terrible, awful thing happened. And then because their other son is a terrible, awful murderer – yeah. They're probably like greatly disliked even yeah. though you know they've been through so much. So, that's some um, that's a lot of bad like, car- like not even karma, just like bad juju yeah. or Luck. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Over this family like like a curse almost. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking, but that is the story of the Stainer family. How wow. one member was kidnapped for seven years and another became a serial killer. And I really cannot believe that I hadn't heard about it before. So yeah. thank you again to Ariane for suggesting this because, wow, I can't believe it. And I will now definitely be going to watch that show on Hulu. Yeah. So yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I will post pictures of the victims, Joey Armstrong, Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. I'll also post photos of Steven and Timmy and, of course, the disgusting Carrie. So go over to our Instagram or Facebook to see those. But that's all I got for you guys today. We'll see you on Thursday with a brand new episode. And until then, keep it human. Bye.